Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, after intense debate, Hamilton is moving ahead with the city manager hiring process despite calls for more diversity on the hiring panel. Hamilton City staff have issued an apology, apology, yeah, for a buried report on the friction levels on the asphalt on the Red Hill. And also, Ontario has announced changes to the autism program, leading to one PC staffer to resign. We'll talk with the minister as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It also got a little intense yesterday at City Council when they started talking about who was going to select the new city manager. Of course, uh, we know that uh, Chris Murray left some time ago and now works for the City of Toronto. Mike Zagarek is the acting city manager, so council has to strike a panel and interview prospective people to take the job. But who should sit on that panel? And that seemed to be the contentious issue. Joining us to talk about uh, what went on and uh, the result of that yesterday is uh, John Paul Danko, who is, of course, the uh, counselor for Ward 8 up on Hamilton Mountain. John Paul, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on again. Well, this is this is important stuff, and 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 I know that uh, even on election night, uh, when you guys were down at City Hall meeting the new councillors that had just been elected, uh, we had a bit of a roundtable discussion uh, through the course of the evening then about about the impact that new people on council were going to have, and just uh, whether you know you're going to sometimes feel as if you're on the the outside looking in. That, uh, that don't worry, guys, we got this. You just watch this. And that, it, it, was it a little patronizing the way, the, the way things handled were handled yesterday? I'm not sure if it was patronizing. I'm sure that wasn't the intention of the uh, the incumbent councillors. Um, but you're right. The the city manager is a very important issue. It's probably one of the biggest decisions that this term of council is going to make. And it's not like setting the budget or some of the other decisions that we make that we can revisit on an annual basis. And if we need to make adjustments, they can be made. Once once the city manager is hired, um, that person is going to be running the corporation of the city of Hamilton um, for you know a number of years into the future, possibly even pass through the whole entire term and into the next and you know beyond that. Mm-hmm. So this decision is, is something that, uh, as a as a new counselor, is something that I take very seriously. That uh, I'm you know very interested in being involved with the process as much as I can be. So. I think part of the discussion there was around the role that um, that the new councillors have in that process, and you know how how realistically uh, we could be involved, and in, in, because the the process was put in place by the by the previous um, term of council. So yeah, but right um, off the bat, there that that's a, part, a thing that I've got a bit of a beef with. Mm-hmm. Uh, why would they do something like that, knowing that there's an election in just a couple of weeks from then, and, and there could well be new faces on council, and you, this council that just got elected, are the ones that are going to have to make the decision? So why? Would, I, that, it seems to me that it was it, it was wrong-headed for them to actually strike a, a committee before the election was, was going to be held. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to speculate on what the... Uh you know, the motivations were for striking that committee prior to the election. But uh, one, one of the arguments that was raised was, well, if you really wanted to be on the, the city manager steering committee, all you had to do is run for chair of one of the standing committees, because that's that's what the makeup of that committee is. It's the mayor and the chairs of all the standing committees. And um, But that's not carved in stone. No, that can be changed, certainly, and that there is a motion coming forward um, next week to council uh, requesting a change to the makeup of that standing committee. But the uh, the debate uh, yesterday was focused on uh, a request by Councillor Nan to just hold off on holding interviews in the process until that 
the final makeup of the standing committee is decided. Um, but uh, just going back to the, the issue of, of the chairs of the standing committees, I mean, as a new councillor, I think that's that's two separate responsibilities, right? Is one is your responsibility to the standing committee, another is a completely different issue, which is which is the city manager. So um, they kind of got confused together a little bit, but it doesn't take away from the importance of what the makeup is of the final selection committee that that makes the decision on the city manager. So it was voted down, so obviously they're going to carry on with this. And there's a few things that we need to talk about over a process on this as well. Mm-hmm. But is there going to be an opportunity for you, for instance, as a new councillor, to, to question any of any of the applicants? Not to question them. Um, anyone around council, and the mayor's made this clear, that uh, anybody on council is, is welcome to sit in on uh, any of the meetings that the city manager steering committee has. So I've already sat in on the initial meeting, uh, which was February 1st, and then there's another meeting this Saturday with interviews. So I'm intending to sit in on that. Because at the end of the day, regardless of what the makeup of the steering committee ends up landing on, um, the the final pick of that committee will come to council, and council has the final decision. So uh, as a new councillor, if even if I'm not formally involved, I want to be as informed as I can so that when that final pick does come to council that I can make an informed decision. But you're not going to be involved in the vetting process at all. In other words, this committee is going to make a recommendation, and uh, and right. you can vote yay or nay on the recommendation, but you're not going to know, unless you attend all the interviews, you're not going to know anything about any of the other applicants. That's right, and, and I think as, as a new councillor, it's, uh, I mean, from my perspective anyway, it's it's kind of unfortunate because... Sitting in on those meetings, um, we're literally sitting at the kids' table. We're, you know, at the back of the room, and we can't speak and we can't ask questions. So it's, uh, I mean, from a from a process perspective, it's it's difficult to to just sit there and and you know, as an elected councillor that has the same rights as everybody else, to to not have the opportunity to be formally involved in the process. And it, and I think that's where Hamilton differs from a lot of other municipalities in Ontario, where they have struck a similar committee. They've opened it up to anybody that's interested in the process. And I think that would be a, a much more collaborative and productive approach. Well, because there's going to be a, a, could be a scenario developed here where, if, if, for instance, you attend these things this Saturday, uh, you're going to get a report back from this committee at some point that's going to say, okay, candidate XYZ here is, is the one we're recommending. And you may think, you know what, I don't think that's the best candidate. But you don't, that's, it's too late then, isn't it? That's right. And and I think there's there's kind of a focus on what the outcome versus the process. So I think at the end of the day, everybody on council wants the best person in that job. And I think there's a presumption that the reason why me and Councillor Wilson and Councillor Nan are pushing to be on the steering committee is because we want a different outcome. But that that's not necessarily true. We're more interested in just the process and making sure that... Um, there's a rigorous selection method and that the perspectives that we bring to the table, which are, you know, each of us brings a very, very different um, perspective that they are, you know, taken into account in the selection and that our voices are heard. Well, and, and that's the elephant in the room. I know that. And, and I, I got the sense in looking at some of the reporting I saw at the meeting yesterday that uh, some of your council colleagues got a little defensive when they were told that maybe they're not the best qualified to be able to, to deal with some of the issues that uh, that you've brought up here, uh, including, uh, well, what Councilor Nan said about equity, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, and, and that should be part of the criteria, you would think. And I, I'm sure that's stated in, in what you guys are writing down to, to give it for the guidelines for this thing. 
But are we absolutely, as a council, you guys absolutely comfortable with the people that are on that committee that they can do that and look at through that, any of the applicants or all of the applicants with through that prism? Exactly. And, and I think that was uh, kind of a prevailing theme amongst uh, some of the questions to the delegates that, well, we have incumbent councillors that have years, decades of experience. Uh, but what we heard from uh, Dr. Karen Bird from McMaster University is sometimes when you are involved in an organization for that length of time, your perspective becomes narrowed. And it really is an advantage to have, um, to have a wider perspective when you're making decisions like this. Um, different perspectives in career, you know, life experience, and, and then also on the gender and, uh, and culture and equity and, and that side of the lens as well. I mean, um, the best decisions are made when you have the widest um, diversity of voices at the table. Well, we saw that with one of the other aspects of what you guys were dealing with yesterday, too, when it came to what kind of voting method we're going to use in the next election. Uh, mm-hmm. The longer you're there, you be, it, it just gets to be, you're absolutely right, same old, same old. Well, this is what I'm comfortable with. Uh, yeah, and it's not to say that that, that, you know, that experience isn't valuable. I, I mean, when I look at somebody like Councillor Ferguson, who has run a very large corporation, has decades of experience in business, I mean, he's... The exactly the type of person that I think should be on the, you know, the committee to select a new manager. I mean, his experience is extremely valuable there. But as much as he may uh, empathize within, and myself as well, uh, with women or you know people of um, different uh, um, ethnic makeup, I don't know, and I will never know what it's like to be a woman or a black man or you know somebody from a different life experience than I have. So. That's why it's so important to include those voices at the table. Yeah, and, and I got the sense from your comments and Councillor Wilson's and Councillor Nan's yesterday, it's not as if you're saying, hey, some of those people don't belong on the committee. It says, hey, there should be more people and there should be more diversity on that committee and, and more perspectives on that committee. That, that's exactly it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, we, we are trying to be as involved as we can um, with the role that uh, that is provided to us, but I think that's exactly the point. The the more, and, and this is what we heard from the delegations, and I have to say, the delegations were absolutely amazing. I was I was floored by the amount of uh, wisdom and knowledge that they brought to the table there, um, and that that was the prevailing theme. The the more perspective, the more diversity you have in a committee like that, um, it it leads to a better decision making process, and it's. And it's as simple as things like when um, a, a potential candidate asks a question in a certain way, if they make eye contact, how they sit, how they project their voice. You have a, a bias built into your life experience that you may discount that person who may be an excellent candidate just because they don't make eye contact with you or you know those, those little um, interpersonal traits that we sort of subconsciously process but might not be cognizant of that uh, that enters into our decision-making process. You've probably seen, as I have, uh, some pushback on social media, but one of the other elements of the uh, decision yesterday, uh, the fact that these interviews are going to be held off-site, in other words, out of town, in fact, uh, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people are very concerned about that. Uh, I, I can understand the logic in that. What's your read on it? I mean, I don't personally have a problem with that. I, I think... Uh, Hiring a city manager is a, is a serious business. So when you are bringing in very high-level professionals from other municipalities, and, and most of the time these are people that already have a job and 
you know, they might not want their employer to know that they're going for an interview. This you, you, you can guess that. No, of course they don't want that. I mean, yeah. if that was the headline, hey, guess who? The uh, CEO from such and such applied for the job in Hamilton. That guy's not exactly. going to be the CEO of that other city for very long. Exactly. So it, it makes sense to have that process where you go to somewhere offsite and you bring in people, um, you, you know, they, that so people don't know who they are and, the process of holding the meeting in, in uh, offsite, I don't personally have a problem with, but I, I can see why it, it leads with the perception that it, as, that it uh, you know may bring forward. Well, we'll see how it rolls out. Uh, it's going to go on the same way that uh, the uh, councillor, the previous council actually, had uh, wanted to see it. So, but you will be attending. I assume the other councillors uh, will be attending. But uh, mm-hmm. you can uh, you can be seen but not heard. I guess that's the rule here. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of how it's it's rolled out. But I mean, we uh, we intend to be heard when it when it does come to council, and we still do have an opportunity next week to possibly change the the makeup, the formal makeup of the steering committee. So I, I'm pretty hopeful that uh, that this discussion isn't over yet. We'll find out soon enough. John Paul, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Thank you, Bill. Take care, John Paul Danko, the councillor for Ward Eight, of course. Uh, and the process will unfold. And, and again, I, as I say, I saw on Twitter and a number of other places uh, some citizens and some uh, other tweets of people getting very upset about process. But you got to look at this logically. Uh, if you're employed in another community and you've applied for this job, you may well be the best candidate for it, and the city may up, Hamilton may up, but if you don't make it, you don't want it out there that you were looking for another job because that's pretty much going to you know, risk your employment in, in your current job. So there has to be some level of confidentiality there. That's, that's really what this comes down to. It's not the counselors being underhanded. It's out of respect, obviously, for the applicants. And that's the way the process has, has to be handled. That's all there is to it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Driven on the Red Hill over the last, uh, well, six years, uh, you should be concerned about this. Uh, yesterday, Hamilton City staff issued an extraordinary apology to the public, admitting a damning report that raises concerns about the friction levels on the asphalt on the deadly Red Hill Parkway. Now, we've had panel discussions here. We've had, right here in this studio, family members of people who have died in collisions on that road. And there were studies done, and counselors and staff at, at one time or another all said the road's safe and just people are driving too fast. They, they were going to do some improvements, but they said, no, like, you know, that, it's fine. No, it's not. We're going to look at this from a couple of different perspectives, uh, this revelation about this uh, report. Uh, first of all, John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. John, what are your thoughts on this? This is this is shocking to me. Well, it's uh, it, it's unprecedented I, in my time here uh, looking at uh, Hamilton City Council that, that a report was uh, released in this way and um, with an apology, but I, I think it was appropriate, certainly for... Um, staff to to uh, promptly get this in front of council and to uh, release the reports. So, you know, once something happens, the best thing you can do is get out there and deal with it uh, as openly as you can. Now we told uh, we're told rather that there was a long closed door session. Obviously, they're they're going to I would think be legal ramifications to this. Well, there could uh, could very well be. Um, but uh, I, I think it's very interesting, um, you know, to try to understand why a report like this would not have uh, been presented. And uh, I see that there's going to be a, a comprehensive investigation about it uh, and a report to council, and hopefully uh, we'll learn something there. But um, it's, you know, there, there had to be a reason why this report was not presented 
uh, in the normal course of action. And I think that's going to be an important piece of all this once it's uh, once that uh, comprehensive study is completed. Well, and a number of questions, which I'm sure were asked last night behind closed doors, but we, I think we deserve to get some answers on this as well, is uh, why was this report done way back when? Uh, who commissioned it? Uh, who Was it somebody on council? Was it staff-driven? We don't know any of that stuff at this stage, do we? Well, I, I would imagine staff initiated it. I mean, there, there's been controversy about uh, safety on that highway. Um, you know, the report, the initial report, the one that, that identified the uh, the, the friction issues was done in November 2013, and certainly we'd been hearing uh, complaints about safety on that highway from long before that. So I think obviously what happened was, uh, um, you know, staff went ahead and, and, and got a report done um, in response to that sort of anecdotal um, complaints that have been coming down the pipe. And um, the real issue then is... Uh, what was it about that uh, report that uh, kept them from uh, bringing it forward at that time? I mean, there's uh, all new leadership in public works now, so it's going to be interesting to, you know, we're kind of digging through the, the mists of time here to find out uh, what the reason is. I hope uh, the reason for not issuing the report uh, doesn't have anything to do with the political culture at, at Hamilton, but... Uh, we know that that can't be ruled out as well. Well, yeah, I mean, in the absence of answers comes speculation, and you have to wonder, uh, and you know, why this thing was was put away, and and whose decision it was to do that in the first place, and who had eyes on this. Uh, you know, the, we do know the company apparently, a Tradewind Scientific was the company that did the study, and uh, they said, and they, as we've talked about here, this is about friction levels, in other words, traction on the road. And uh, the, especially the Red Hill section, the link was okay, apparently, according to this study. But the Red Hill, it went from, uh, well, they say below expected standards to well below expected standards. Uh, by somebody's definition, John, that makes that a dangerous road. Well, uh, I'm not an engineer, but it's obvious there's going to be a difference in friction levels between a level road like the link and, yeah. a, and a descending or ascending road like the Red Hill Expressway. So the fact that there'd be a difference... Uh, you know, uh, given the, the paving perhaps being similar, uh, that is, is not really a surprise. I see a, a second consultant was brought in, um, CIM, to sort of go through the, uh, the trade win and, and sort of comment on, on the initial report that talked about uh, the safety issues. And my read of that report, um, you know, they, they're backing off a little bit from you know, they seem to be saying that, um, you know, the numbers and the, 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 the uh, friction levels that were found in the original report uh, were within the design specifications of the highway. So uh, it'd be a little concerning if, if the highway was designed uh, with that level of uh, friction uh, issue in place. But if you read the second report, it, it tends to slightly downplay the uh, the starkness of the uh, trade wind report. Still, it's, uh, you know, w w what you have here is uh, a, r a report that clearly says uh, the friction levels were uh, below, uh, well below link. And, and of course, the point made there was people driving along the link and then swinging down the, the red hill, they're, they're, you know, they don't change their uh, driving behavior accordingly. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, you know, they, they may not realize that 
the stretch of road they're on is more dangerous than the one they just left. Well, there was some speculation and even I think some some concern expressed when the road opened uh, about the materials that were used. And because I know that the, the city was actually kind of pumping up their chest and say this is a brand new mix of whatever it is that they're going to put on here. And it's state-of-the-art stuff. And, and now, you know, when the number of accidents that have occurred or collisions that have occurred there, people started to wonder, is that actually the right kind of material for that kind of road? And I, I think this report that we got from Tradewinds here that just got released after six years uh, doesn't really answer that question. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's a, you know, first of all, they're, they're relatively brief reports. So uh, I'm not a traffic engineer. I, I, I can't speak to any of the technical issues. Uh, other than uh, they they were given a report in uh, 2013 that suggested um, further investigation of the uh, safety aspects along the Red Hill, and um, and according to CIM, you know that that's when the cat's eyes were installed. Yeah. Um, some of the signage issues. Um, I drive that road frequently, and I can tell you there's still a lot of crazy drivers on there. And, and while the, the argument that it's strictly a matter of speeding that, that is the cause of all the accidents, clearly this report would, would kind of blow that up. Nonetheless, there are a lot of ridiculously uh, fast drivers weaving in and out, um, using it as a, you know, it, it really does have, it does seem to invite a, a very aggressive driver for some reason. Well, I'm, I've, I've expressed some concern, as a lot of other people have in this community. I mean, even about the link, too. Uh, you know, that was initially supposed to be three lanes wide in each direction, and they, they cut down costs, and they only made it two. And I know that we've had engineers on the program, and they've said, yeah, well, no, the, the ramps are far enough apart. There's enough ra-. Well, yes and no. I mean, because I've seen a lot of near collisions happen because people can't get over or trying to cut over, whatever the case might be. So, you know, it may well fit within the specs of, of this sort of thing. And here we are, neither one of us engineers speculating about engineering principles. But, you know, the numbers indicate that there's a problem here. And I know excessive speed is always going to be a concern and probably is a factor in an awful lot of the collisions that have occurred there. But uh, the fact that they've responded, John, in the way they have, I'm going to talk with the general manager in just a minute here about some of the things that all of a sudden, okay, we're going to do this, 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 and this, kind of indicates that, like, whoa, we just we got caught off guard here. This isn't a very safe road. We have to do something about it right away. Well, I, it, it sounds like it was just a hellishly nasty surprise for um, council and, uh, uh, and, and some staff, obviously. Um, you know, the, here, here was a report that, um, that might have led to an earlier examination or, or even a repaving, uh, that simply uh, wasn't available, and uh, uh, it's unfortunate. But um, I mean, I think it's good that uh, you know we're going to get a, a, a repaving of uh, the Red Hill uh, this spring, as soon as some of this ice is gone, and uh, that's that's the good news. But um, but if know, somebody I, requested I, this, John, and I, I'm going to you know, again, I don't know, I, I can't. Somebody's going to have to go through the minutes of city council meetings, I guess, back to 2013. If somebody on council requested this, you'd think, you know, hey, where's that report? Where's that report? Because apparently it never surfaced. Well, I'm not sure uh, council would necessarily know, uh, uh, you know, that a report had been commissioned and, unless council had directed that the report be commissioned. I mean, staff uh, use consultants to advise them, and uh, they don't have to go to council every time they commission a report. So it could well be that the report was, was not something that was vetted through council uh, to begin with. Well, I guess we're going to try to get some answers uh, in just a couple of seconds here. John, appreciate the time, and I'll be watching you for this in the Bay Observer to see what kind of stuff you can uncover on this. 
My pleasure, Bill. Thanks. Take care, as always. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, I want to get Dan McKinnon in on the conversation. He is the uh, general manager of public works for the city of Hamilton and was obviously intimately involved in the discussion yesterday. Dan, thanks for jumping in. I appreciate your time today. Good morning, Bill. Uh, the obvious question is what happened here? Uh, well, we, we shared information with council last night that, uh, they, that I, I don't believe they've ever seen before. And as a result of that, they directed us to do the uh, the release that we did last night. And uh, so we're kind of dealing with the rollout of that. No, I'm not trying to point fingers here, but I mean, the, the, uh, there's a concern here about how could this thing be sitting around for six years? And, and, and so, was it in somebody's bottom drawer? I mean, what happened here? So I think there's uh, obviously there's going to be lots of uh, really important questions that are going to be asked over the next several days. And I think, uh, you know, I, I guess my, my comment would be that people may have to be patient when it comes to getting answers to those questions. Council last night directed the auditor, the city's auditor, to undertake an investigation. And uh, so that's something that um, he, he will be uh, working on over the next couple of months. And I think we're all going to be eagerly awaiting his findings. Uh, that's unprocessed. Um, but I guess the other element to this, too, and, and we'll probably get more answers of that once that auditor report comes out, is uh, is what's this doing about uh, the work that needs to be done? And, and I, to that end, apparently, uh, you've moved a few things and jigged a few things around, and a few of the things that people have been asking or recommending that maybe be done on the road looks like they're finally going to get done. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what's important, uh, I would say, for your listeners is, is notwithstanding the fact that uh, council's never seen this information before, uh, they were hearing anecdotal stories, and um, they directed staff last year to, to begin a, a process whereby on an annual basis, council could see uh, an annual collision report. Um, so the collision numbers are uh, consistent with, uh, you know, wet weather, uh, an increase in accidents in wet weather. That's a public document that people can uh, can see on the city's website when they can see the statistics there. So uh, council, uh, even even in the absence of um, uh, this information being in front of them, have been directing staff to undertake a number of things over the last three or four years. So there's been a, a considerable amount of pr- improvements uh, with respect to roadside safety and signage and guardrails and those types of things that have happened over the last number of years. And all of those things are to help improve the safety of the road and Notwithstanding, you know, it's it, you don't have to explain to too many people that friction is a pretty important thing. But there's a lot of other things that are, are important to help um, people interact with the roadway and make decisions about how fast they should go. I mean, one of the things that I, I know we've we've said over the years, and, and it, it does bear uh, repeating, is that we do see a lot of speeding on the link, and uh, so that that's something that can't be lost in the conversation. But Certainly this, uh, this information that was shared last night is important, but there has been a, a number of things that have happened over the last number of years to improve the safety of both the Link and the Red Hill. The, one of the things that was talked about yesterday, of course, well, you mentioned medians, barriers, etc. Are you talking about all the way along the, the pathway? So one of the reports that went to Council last night, Council approved, was for us to do a, kind of a functional design to basically look at the entire length of the, the Link and the Red Hill. And, and really this is kind of a future-looking thing to say, you know, uh, what would it look like if we add a lane? What would it look like if we add lighting? Um, when you add lighting, you start to trigger a bunch of other things because now you have to think about protecting the bases. And so do you put in a center concrete barrier wall? If you're going to do that, now you have to do complete stormwater drainage. Um, so uh, something like that triggers a lot of other things. And so when we look kind of into the future and we say, you know, the idea of a third lane there, it does trigger a bunch of other work. So we're just trying to get our arms around that through the study to say, what are all the things that we would need to do and try to come forward with what would the, kind of the capital cost of that be? 
And I guess the the initial response to that is this is not going to be cheap, is it? No, adding a lane, and, and certainly if we're going to add some illumination to that, uh, either for the entire length or parts of the uh, the roadway, that's going to be pretty significant money. And you know, when you make an investment uh, in a facility like this, it becomes it becomes one of your key. This is a key transportation facility. It's, it, it sees traffic volumes like no other road in the city. Uh, it's it's integral to our economy now. Um, we while it it, it becomes a, 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 a facility that really helps your entire city from a from a growth and prosperity perspective um it, it's it's a big undertaking and it's it's a considerably uh, expensive asset first of all to build and then obviously to maintain so yeah whenever you're having these kinds of conversations you're not talking about lunch money this would be a pretty big uh, pretty big expenditure so so council wants to get ahead of that um, because obviously they need to budget for it and, and put in a, a plan so that if, if they do make a decision to move forward with some or all of these works um that they can do it in a way that's not going to uh you know that's that's going to be palatable from a from a budget perspective. Dan, is the uh, reduction in speed limit from ninety down to eighty? Is that along the whole length of both roads, or is it just the Red Hill? No, the recommendation that got approved last night was for the reduction to eighty uh, only on the Red Hill Valley Expressway from uh, green, the, about the Green Hill Interchange down to the QEW. So down, okay, I get that. That's the railway bridge, the, the overpass there on the Red Hill, and that's that's going to be at eighty kilometers uh, down on in. And uh, the consideration, again, about medians, uh, which have been discussed in the past. Uh, the lighting at the top, which, which was already discussed, uh, is there extra money for that now? Uh, there's, there's no money been dedicated specifically for lighting. That The idea of illumination will get swept up in this, this broader functional design analysis kind of study that we're going to do on the entire facility from the 403 all the way to the QEW. What do you say to the people that are driving on that road every day and, and hear something like this and say, is this safe? I mean, that is, it's, it's raising a question in some people's minds. I've seen just some of the reaction on social media today after the story broke about what's going on. Like, they're sure not sure if they should be driving on this road. I, I think the message is, is to, to drive for the conditions, drive the speed limit. Um, you know, all the things that you would just, you know, that, you, that I tell my kids is, you know, you know, leave your phone alone, drive for the conditions, drive the limit. Um, and, and people should be fine. I mean, they, they, uh, they shouldn't have any concerns about their safety if they're doing all the right things. And that's why, you know, I, I don't want to be perceived as trying to distract from the issue of the friction. There's no question it's an issue. But it's, it's, it's when you combine that with speeding and you combine that with uh, driving conditions. Um, you know, there are millions of people who drive on that facility every year that don't have any problem. And uh, so... So we, we tend to focus on the collisions, and we absolutely should. Those are absolutely important and um, because that tells us things about the road. Uh, but it's, it's kind of this, it's, it's the same kind of simple message that we always tell people is drive for the conditions and drive the limit and pay attention and that kind of thing, and, and people should be fine. Dan McKinnon, General Manager, Public Works for the City. Dan, as always, appreciate the time. Thanks for this. You're welcome, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, we told you the Ontario government has announced changes to the way they uh, plan to uh, fund autism programs here in Ontario, uh, which, according to many of the critics that we've talked to, does not recognize the difference between children on different ends of the autism spectrum. Uh, there has been reaction, a lot of negative reaction to this, uh, to the point, actually, where a, a PC staffer has actually resigned over these changes. Uh, his name is Bruce McIntosh. Uh, he uh, quit with regards to these recommendations, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, tell us why and explain to it. Bruce, it's a busy day for you. Thanks for jumping on with us today. Well, it is, and thanks for the opportunity. Um, 
Well, I stuck to my principles. Um, I've been involved in the autism file for 15 years. My son was diagnosed in 2003. Um, it's uh, these changes are are wrongheaded. Um, there's it's just simply not the right thing to do to give people, children and youth with autism who have a range of needs, the same amount of money each. Um, it's it's far from adequate. For the kids at the, uh, the high needs end of the spectrum, and it's more than is needed from the kids at the uh, at the, the low needs end of the spectrum. Um, so th- uh, that causes a whole bunch of other problems. Um, so it, it, it just it wasn't the right way to go, and I wasn't about to stick around to defend it. Bruce, I get a more general question. Maybe <laughs> you've been doing this for a long time, of course, being involved with the Autism Coalition. Why are you having so much trouble, and why is the other people, other families that are, are living with this, having so much trouble trying to educate governments, not just this one, but even the previous government, about how this should be addressed? Well, there is this there is this disconnect between understanding that um, you know this this costs quite a bit of money in some cases, not so much money in others, um, but that somehow. Um, age has something to do with it. I mean, even in, in this decision, I, it's, it's astonishing to me. We fought a fight with the Liberals three years ago about a cutoff at age five. Yep. And they came to their senses and actually backed away from that. Well, not until uh, you guys made a lot of noise. Well, we did, because uh, it was the wrong thing to do. It still is. But here we are. This minister is now saying, well, they're going to drop the, uh, the annual cap on funding when a kid hits age six. A birthday doesn't change a child's needs. It just doesn't. It's it's an absolutely ridiculous thing to say that. It's not supported by the research, um, and it's the wrong thing to do. Um, you know, we we had a very tense time with the Liberals, and I believe that we were making progress. Um, you know, Michael Cotto put me on his advisory committee, knowing that I was a conservative. I mean, that that was not a surprise to anyone. Um, and, it, and, you know, him appointing me to that committee certainly didn't suddenly make me a liberal. Um, it made me, you know, it, it gave me an opportunity to, to give input on something I knew quite a bit about. Um, but you know, Wait, Which doesn't always happen with committee appointments, so I mean, that was... Well, <laughs> it, it doesn't. I think they did a pretty good job. But, you know, I saw a tweet from uh, McLeod's chief of staff this morning saying that, you know, I, they weren't going to listen to me because, of course, I... I had advised on that program. Well, that's a ridiculous thing to say. I've, I've had a Conservative Party card in my wallet since I was in high school. And, and my, you know, my conservative philosophical outlook, um, you know, that hasn't ever changed. Um, so I would have thought that they would, you know, appreciate that and that there was somebody, you know, with the same political stripe who, uh, who could give them some good advice. But they weren't interested. Well, but Bruce, look, whether it's the Liberal government or Conservative government, uh, and when they're talking about pu- pu- putting people together and appointees to commissions that are going to come up with recommendations for the government to, to entertain ideas about how they're going to change this, uh, your political affiliation should take a back seat to your expertise in that particular field, and you've got that. Well, clearly it did. There were 15 people on that committee, and, and we gave some pretty good advice, and we were making progress. You know, we really were making progress, and this government has decided to throw it away. And, and um, I, 
it, it's a lot better idea to continuously improve something that might not be ideal, but is is steadily getting better than to just toss it out the door and come up with something new that I believe is going to be considerably worse. Talk to us about some of the things that you would like to see happen. I want to maybe get from that angle, because uh, obviously you, you live with this, you know what's going on, and, and you're absolutely right. As, as we've talked about in past discussions on this program, it's very hard to say, well, this is what autism is all about, because there's a spectrum, and, and, and any two people that are living with it, of course, could be totally different. Right. Um, well, you know, the, the high-needs kids um, who, are, who need a, a 30- to 40-hour-a-week week program those kids are costing somewhere between seventy and eighty thousand dollars a year. Um, what this minister has said is a that there is a one hundred and forty thousand uh, dollar cap from diagnosis to eighteen. What she didn't talk about yesterday is that there's an annual or yearly cap of twenty thousand dollars. So for those high needs kids, that means slashing their funding to to you know, 25%. Like, what a bad idea. What's the, what's the, I'm asking you to speculate, but what's the rationale for something like that? Are they assuming that, uh, that they're not going to be living with autism by the time they get to be that age? Well, I, I, I simply don't get it. You know, the, conser- the conservatives stood beside us three years ago when we fought the age cutoff fight with the liberals. They they heard all of the autism doesn't end at five. That was our, our hashtag. Um, and, and they knew, right? They were speaking up in the House in, in, in support of us. They were coming to our events, our rallies. They, were, um, they, they dedicated an opposition day in the legislature to us. You know, they, they were really supporting us, and now here we are. Um, I, 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 I really do not understand it. I... I, I it just makes no sense. But you you have documented everything so you can present and say, this is what we want to see happen. This is not just a speculative idea here. You you actually came up with a series of recommendations. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and here's another sort of absurdity in the middle of all of this. Um, the minister and her chief of staff have been tweeting regularly in the last 24 hours that somehow they have met 14 of 19 recommendations. I've been through the briefing binder more than once now. I don't see anything that adds up to 19 recommendations. And I certainly don't know what 14 they're talking about. But here's what's, I mean, that aside, my wife, Laura, put, who took over the presidency of the OAC when I left to go to Queen's Park, she put an op-ed forward, the Toronto Star published it uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a list of three things that were wanted and three things that were not wanted. And she had told the, the minister's chief of staff, you know, Doug Ford says he doesn't want us on the front lawn. Here's how to keep us off the front lawn, because it's cold. I'd rather not have to protest. And what did they do? They chose the thing that was at the top of the list in the don't do this column. So whether they met 14 or 4 or 40 other points, they did a really bad thing that kind of makes those other uh, ideas, well, you know, not quite as good. Well, we're going to try to get an explanation to it. Uh, Bruce, uh, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Let's stay in touch. Yes, please. 
Bruce McIntosh, uh, who uh, obviously is very upset. There's a family that's living with autism and uh, has a, a lot of concern about the uh, the recommendations being made by the Ford government. Uh, he referenced uh, the, the minister in charge. And uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome uh, Lisa McLeod, Minister of Children, Community, and Social Services to the Bill Kelly Show. Minister, thank you for the time. Appreciate you jumping Thanks on today. Appreciate having the uh, the opportunity to be on. Well, I know you've had discussions with and you've heard a number of the concerns that have been raised by uh, Bruce McIntosh and others along this. Uh, the, the, if I can capsulize it into one or two points here, I think, uh, they they don't like the idea of, of, of capping this, of simply saying 20000 bucks a year per family. Uh, you can't have a one-size-fits-all. That's his assertion. How do you respond to that? Well, Bill, I have a quick question for you. Do you think it's fair that 23,000 children or 75% of the kids in, in Ontario with autism are denied service by their government right now? No, of course not. And, That's and not fair. That isn't fair. So you have a $321 million program. The best way to be fair and equitable and ensure there's sustainability is to make sure that we clear the wait list and we give every child an opportunity to succeed. The other question I have, this is a, a very large ministry, where would you take the money from? Kids with developmental disabilities, would you take it from uh, children in care, children in custody, women fleeing domestic abuse, sex trafficking, refugees who are resettling from Syria? These are all tough decisions, and as, as sympathetic and empathetic as I am toward all parents, I cannot in good conscience, as the minister responsible uh, for the Ontario Autism Program, allow only 25% of the children to get support. And so I think people have to be reasonable, and we have to understand we have to take tough choices, but we need to be fair. There's children on that wait list, 23,000 of them, who deserve a fighting chance, which is why our government yesterday... Um, doubled our investment for diagnostic hot hubs so that we can get children diagnosed sooner. It's also why we adopted a direct funding model to give money directly to parents so they can work with Autism Ontario to ensure they can navigate the system and get the supports that they need, and we're going to give them choice, whether that's behavioral therapy, whether that's caregiver training for uh, parents or others, uh, whether that's respite training or technological aids. We're providing choice flexibility, and we want to empower families. But let me be perfectly clear. There are 23,000, 75% of the kids in Ontario with autism are right now denied service from their government, and that is not fair. And and, and, and by the way, and to the credit, I mean, that that's a, a shorter list than it used to be, so the, you've made some progress on that, and that's great news to hear. But I guess the question a lot of the parents are asking, ministers, what happens when the money runs out? If, if you have a, a child who's... who's Therapy is going to cost sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. What, what, where do they get the money? Where does, where's, what's going to happen when the money runs out? Well, uh, I, where, where would you? Uh, I guess I just asked you the question myself. So we had a program where we had twenty-five percent of the children getting a hundred percent of the funding, and so it's a qu question of, of fairness. So we want to make sure that a hundred percent of the children are part of that funding model, and so that's what we're doing. And we're allowing for up to $140,000 for the life of a child. Um, there's going to be flexibility within that. And that's a lot of money. So um, the, the other question is, is that I'll, and I'll put this to you, and I'll, I'll put this to Mr. McIntosh as well, uh, where do you take the money from elsewhere? And again, is it is it the thirteen year old girl that's being sex trafficked, and we're trying to support her? Like these these are the tough decisions that we're making. Well, I know, and but in so a broader base, look at that's what every government has to do, and it's not just out of your minister portfolio. Those are those are all uh, allotments these, these of, of budget. These are actually all of my 
these are actually all within my ministry. Sure, it is. It and is. But, but, but yeah, but the government makes a determination about how much money is going to be in that budget. And, and you know, there's always should be and could be flexibility. That's a matter of government making priorities. So, well, let me so, ask you about one other element well, no, of this. I, I really want to ask you that because I think it's important that we understand there's tough choices. We have a $321 million program. I increased it by 20% in the last seven months so that we could support more children and we could invest in diagnostic hubs. I just, I guess the question I have for Mr. McIntosh and others is why do they think that 75% of the children in Ontario that right now aren't receiving support should continue to languish on a wait list? That to me is cruel, is unfathomable. And that was the biggest problem with the previous Liberal administration's uh, uh And I, lamb- I lambasted them, and so did other people because of that, that, you know, autism doesn't end at five years of age. And finally, and they, get, program, and they, they smartened up, finally, after pressure from the you as opposition members and members of, the, of families that were living with this. But there's another element to this that uh, we brought up back then uh, that I know Mr. McIntosh has talked about and others have, uh, Minister. Uh, why could you not consider a, a needs-based funding? Because I'm, I know you're well-versed on this file. Uh, you know that uh, that autism all on that spectrum. There are some people that don't need that much funding. Some people that need a lot more funding. But it just seems as if you just said, "Okay, here's the allotment. No matter what you you no matter where you are on the spectrum, this is what you're going to get." Well, we we understand two things, three three things actually. One, um, every diagnosis is different. Mm-hmm. Two, every child is different. And three, at every stage of a child's and youth life, uh, they go through different um, issues and and need different supports. Which is why, and so this, there's a misnomer in, in the question, uh, which is why we decided we would front end the money where we know uh, where the evidence is that early intervention is key. So we are going to allow for a greater investment for children under the age of five. Um, and then right up until 18, there will be some flexibility in their family budget, working, of course, with the very credible Autism Ontario. And, uh, and, and we'll allow that. The other thing that we're doing is we're ensuring that there is more choice because not, uh, you know, some caregivers and parents uh, don't think behavioral therapy is the be-all and end-all to the child's success. So we're giving them the flexibility in order to do that. So um, we're very proud of the plan. I think it's a plan that uh, in, in a couple of years from now, once we clear the wait list and parents have more choice and they have a funding model and, and that we've been able to get to, uh, to the earlier cohort, this will be very successful. Um, unfortunately, over the past 15 years, we have uh, lost a generation and we're playing from behind. This is the best possible scenario in order to allow every single child in Ontario to succeed. And, and I think it's really important, too, that I point out that our priority are for those families who are lower and middle income uh, who really need the support. And uh, I'm very proud of the plan. I'm very proud of my uh, parliamentary assistant, Amy Fee, uh, who helped develop this plan. We consulted widely. Uh, we looked at models uh, from across Canada and throughout the rest of uh, the world, including in North America. And we've come up with a plan that will support all children with autism, not just 25%. Uh, you know, as a mother myself, I can, I can sympathize with uh, parents who uh, are very emotional, um, but I think we all have to be very reasonable as well and understand that this is a program. We've invested more money than any government in the history of this province in, and we're going to make sure that we clear those wait lists so those children on, languishing on the wait list, 23,000 or 75% of them, get a fighting chance. My job is to protect those children, and that's what I'm going to do, and I'll be unapologetic about it. I totally understand where you're coming from vis-a-vis budgets, but so as one person explained it to me uh, the other day when we had this discussion, you may actually get more people that are get funding now, but there may not be enough funding for the kind of treatment that they're going to need. 
And that's, so it, you, I, they, well, they I just, guess the they, question I have for you is why would you want to deny? Oh, I'm not here to answer questions. I mean, this is your policy, not mine. Yeah, well, and, and I've been pretty clear in how I, I've defined it. We're clearing the, we've invested uh, double into diagnostic hubs to move kids more quickly. We're going to clear the wait list by giving funding directly to parents up to $140,000 uh, until a child is 18 years old. Uh, we'll make sure that the priorities are for those with middle and lower incomes. And I think that's quite reasonable. Um, but I do have uh, other priorities within our ministry as well, and that is funding um, violence against women's shelters. It is protecting young girls who are being sex trafficked. It is supporting refugees who come here from war-torn countries. It is supporting those with developmental disabilities. It is supporting children in custody and children in our child welfare system. Um, so we have a lot of complex issues. One in ten Ontarians rely on my ministry to ensure that the service is there when they need it. 23,000 children right now in that have autism in Ontario are not getting services. Being oh, we get that. We get that. We, and so, these these are all big so, decisions, so and I'm sure we'll have those so discussions when the, when those elements are done there too. Minister, we're right. right up against the clock. I do appreciate you jumping on. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. That's uh, Minister Lisa McLeod uh, with her side of the the new policy that's being introduced by the Ford government. Uh, you've heard both sides. I'll let you decide. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.